Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 26th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the eternal enemy of the Jews. And thank you for listening. Tonight we are once again going to discuss the immigration problem, and the fact that the white Christian nations the Camp of the Saints of Revelation chapter 20, are indeed under a prolonged siege. This siege is without doubt the prophesied time when Satan gathers all of the nations from the four corners of the earth against the children of God. Once again, we have our friend Donald Fox here for the discussion, and most of the presentation this evening will actually be his. However, first, I would like to give a short background on the history of immigration in America before the 1965 Immigration Act so that we can see that not long ago the race issue was debated openly and freely in connection with the issue of immigration and nobody was demonized for wanting to maintain the original ethnic composition of the nation. In fact, before 1965, that was actually the national policy. And while tonight's program focuses on America, perhaps soon Don would be willing to do a follow-up segment focusing on the problem in Europe, as well as some of the related issues, such as the rapidly growing magnitude of sex grooming cases in Britain. The following is compiled from the Georgetown Law Library and various other sources. The United States Congress passed an Immigration Act in 1790. This Naturalization Act allowed white and free immigrants to gain naturalized citizenship after having lived within the boundaries of the United States for two years. The Naturalization Act of 1795 banned British citizens who fought against the United States in the Revolutionary War and raised the occupancy period to five years. In response to the Louisiana Purchase and the addition of Florida, Texas, and Oregon, the immigration policies of the United States were modified in order to promote the settlement of the new territories. <clears throat> from 1800 through 1850, emigration from Europe increased greatly. This expansion in immigration was the result of various forms of social and political upheaval in Europe. From 1920 through 1960, 95% of the immigrants in the United States originated from Northern Europe. From the 1830s to the 1850s, the total number of immigrants to the United States rose from approximately 151,000 to 1.7 million. The vast majority of these immigrants were Irish, German, and British. Emigration from China to the West Coast also increased during this time period, so that by 1860 Chinese immigrants constituted approximately 25% of California's population. 
by 1882, Congress had passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, no charges of racism here, which suspended all emigration from China. Concurrent to this exclusion, emigration from European countries was actively solicited by the United States via the Homestead Act of 1862. This act granted land tracts to naturalized citizens for a nominal price of $1.25 per acre. In 1864, Congress passed the Act to Encourage Immigration, which established the Office of the Commissioner of Immigration and outlawed compulsory military service for male immigrants, a change in the policy during the war between the states. Then during the industrial era, which followed the war between the states, or the war of northern aggression, there was an enormous growth in immigration, which resulted in approximately 23 million immigrants settling in the United States in a short period of time. After the 1880s, increasing numbers of immigrants came from eastern and southern European countries, as well as Scandinavia, Canada, and Latin America. Large numbers of these immigrants were also not European, including over a million from Japan, Turkey, and Mexico. Many were pulled here by contract labor agreements offered by recruiting agents in various industries. From this also arose the propaganda that the streets of America were paved with gold. Hungarians, Poles, Slovaks, Czechs, and Italians were invited to work in the coal mines or steel mills, Greeks to the textile mills, Russian and Polish Jews were attracted to the garment industry and sidewalk markets of New York. Railroad companies, then already dominated by the Jews of Kuhn Loban Company, advertised the availability of free or cheap farmland overseas in pamphlets distributed in many languages, enticing farm workers to the West. This Catholic and Jewish immigration had actually changed the voting demographic in many densely populated areas of the country and shifted the political spectrum to the left in places like New York and Boston and other major cities, Pittsburgh. Due to economic depression, the rate of immigration slowed briefly in the 1890s, dropping from around 5.2 million immigrants annually to 3.6 million. However, by 1910, immigration had increased to 9 million, 9 million per year. That is significant since the total U.S. population was only 76 million in 1900 and 92 million in 1910. That's over 10% of the population was, in the, the population increased, I'm sorry, by over 10% each year from 1900 to 1910. and a 20% total increase. No, no, I'm sorry, that's not quite right because it took a while for the population level to build up to 9 million. If that had kept up, this country would have changed drastically by the 1930s. The whole demographic would have changed drastically.
because by 1910, Eastern and Southern Europeans made up 70% of the immigrants entering the country, and the greater number of these were Catholics and Jews. This sparked some of the nation's first significant anti-immigration debates. During this period, controls on immigration were proposed in Congress, and there was a concurrent rise in anti-immigrant actions and demonstrations. After 1914, immigration dropped off because of the war and later because of immigration restrictions imposed in the early 1920s. Around the same time, from the 1890s to 1914, immigrant Jews began a propaganda campaign in favor of more non-white immigration. And the Jew, Israel Zangwill, wrote the play The Melting Pot, the propaganda that made the term famous in 1910. But the anti-immigration crowd had its own propaganda. In 1915, D.W. Griffith portrayed race relations in America in a very practical, authentic manner in Birth of a Nation, which was even played in the Wilson White House. And the Jews and the liberal establishment gave him hell for it. And their campaign has been relentless ever since. So with the immigration debate raging, the Dillingham Commission released a lengthy study of the immigrant question, which differentiated between desirable and undesirable immigrants based upon ethnicity, race, and religion, with Northern European Protestants being favored over Southern or Eastern European Catholics and Jews with non-European immigrants considered highly undesirable. The commission was named after its chairman, Republican Senator William P. Dillingham of Vermont, and it ran, or I should say, it functioned from 1907 to 1911. It concluded that Immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe posed a serious threat to American society and culture and should be greatly reduced in the future. The Commission made only one recommendation that Congress enact a literacy test as the most feasible single method of restricting undesirable immigration. The Immigration Act of 1917 implemented many of the recommendations of the Dillingham Commission and created the requirement of a literacy test for immigrants. Italian immigrants totaled 3.2 million from 1901 through 1920, while immigration from the Austro-Hungarian Empire totaled 3 million, and approximately 2.7 million people immigrated from Russia during the same period. This number of non-Protestant, non-Northern European immigrants, many of them Jews, along with the political upheaval caused by the entry of the United States into the First World War, created a nationalistic backlash. The result, this resulted in two pieces of immigration legislation. The Emergency Quota Act of 1921 and the Immigration Act of 1924. These acts limited immigration first to 3% and then lowered that limit to 2% and they both tied the limits to the ratio of the current 
ethnic demographic so that the demographic would not be changed by immigration. This is what is referred to as the quota system. For example, if the country had 50 million people who identified as German on the census reports, then for the next 10 years until the next census, immigration from Germany was limited to 2% of that 50 million each year, which is 1 million people per year. So, if there were a million Japanese in a country, immigration would be limited to 20,000 Japanese per year, 2%, so that the Japanese population would not grow disproportionately. And they're just examples. Aside from all of this, the Mexican immigration problem had been an issue at least since the 1920s. During the period from 1929 to 1937, Mexicans were deported, or as they called it back then, repatriated, in numbers which can only be estimated, and the estimates range from 400,000 up to 2 million. This trend continued in smaller numbers until 1940. But during the war, when all of the available white farmhands were off fighting. During the war in 1942, the United States instituted a farm labor program called Operation Bracero, which was to bring as many as 4.6 million Mexican field workers here, supposedly on a temporary basis. But many of them never left, and U.S. employers began to take advantage of them by paying them cut-rate wages. A great number more came into Texas, which was excluded from Bracero because of its own laws against Mexicans, to find jobs with unscrupulous employers. There were by 1953 millions of Mexicans, documented and undocumented, and the issue came to a head. So in 1955, the Eisenhower administration launched Operation Wetback. And while there are conflicting figures of it on its efficacy, deportations of Mexicans totaled somewhere between 300,000 and 1.3 million, which is the official U.S. government figure. Now, there was a Displaced Persons Act of 1948 to allow World War II refugees. And Harry Truman, while signing it into law, is said to have complained that it discriminated against Catholics and Jews. Then the tide of immigration began to change in 1952. First, the McCarran-Walter Act, known as the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, allowed the United States to exclude immigration from ideologically undesirable countries as a way to bar communists. But it also ended the restriction of emigration from Asian and Pacific countries. And it included as natural-born citizens persons born in the United States territories of Guam, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands on or after December 24, 1952. This was probably the cause of massive Puerto Rican immigration to places like New England, New York, and New Jersey from the 1970s as that first 
crop of Puerto Rican inhabitants became suddenly citizens as long as they were born after December 24, 1952. They were suddenly citizens and they came of age in the 1970s. Then the Refugee Relief Act of 1953 supplanted the Displaced Persons Act of 1948 and negated the quota cap for refugees, escapees, and expellees. So even until 1952, United States immigration policy heavily favored white Northern Europeans, except for that 30-year window back at the end of the 19th century in the turn of the 20th. And until 1952, United States immigration policy purposely excluded most Asians, although exceptions were made for Japanese and Filipinos. And the merits of admitting Catholics and Southern and Eastern Europeans were debated without anyone being accused of racism and demonized or driven from politics. But many Jews were admitted in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and that tide was only stemmed temporarily and in small degree by the debate which resulted in the Immigration Acts of the 1920s. But the quota system was f that was formulated in the 1920s was kept in place until the next major Immigration Act, that of 1965, represented a much more drastic change. And we will let our friend Don Fox talk about that. Hello, Don. Hello, Bill. How are you doing on this fine Saturday evening? Wonderful. Thanks for being here once again. And that introduction took a little longer than I even thought, but I couldn't help it. That's okay. I mean, it's your show, and uh, that was that was interesting info. Um, we were just talking. We were reading some of that. Uh, you know, I'm here in Texas now, and we can you can see where the some of this Latino population has been entrenched for a long time here in this state. Well, well, right, but they were heavily discriminated against un until the 1930s. Yeah, I mean, and, and until recently, they were second-class citizens until, what, maybe 20, 30 years ago, they were you know, heavily discriminated against. But it, it, as the propaganda machine has kicked in and as their numbers have just exploded, uh, there's a lot less of that now. Well, well right. I, I mean, it's really coming to a head. It, it's our race in everywhere that we inhabit is really coming to a point of crisis. What, where we're going to lose political power over in, in all of our own countries. Yeah, that's, that's where we're at. And that's pretty much the topic of tonight's show. And uh, having said all that, I figure, well, let's... Uh, um, I'm just going to read a couple of uh, verses here from, from Scripture, you know, verses that our, our audience, I'm sure, is well familiar with, but who knows, maybe we pick up a couple of new people along the way here. Um, so this is Revelation uh, chapter 20, verse 7, the King James Version. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And verse 8, 
and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And verse 9, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So my take on those verses is that this is describing a process that has unfolded over the last 229 plus years, um, mainly starting with Jewish, Jewish emancipation in France around the time of the French Revolution. Uh, that is when Satan was loosed out of his prison. That was, was when they like gained that. political power. That's when they gained yeah. po political rights. Yeah, there was, there was some unrest before that. But yeah, that's when they really hit the world stage uh, for real. Um, the Jews then went and deceived the white Christian nations into accepting uh, these third world blood people as immigrants and refugees, you know, with quotes around that. These low IQ hapless mud people could never mount a serious military invasion of the U.S., Europe, Australia, etc. But with the aid of powerful Jews, a.k.a. Satan, in and outside of the governments, they were let in as cheap labor and pitiful refugees. And once a few of these were allowed in, uh, the family reunification policies opened the doors to millions of these beasts. And that's where the floodgates have really opened. The Camp of the Saints scenario really kicked into gear with the signing of the 1965 Immigration Act. And later in Europe, what we've seen is with, with this uh, migrant crisis. Um, so, yeah, tonight we're mainly going to focus on uh, the 65 Immigration Act and then the... Uh, the devastating effects thereof. So, as, as you laid out, we had a uh, we had a immigration policy in place from the beginning of this nation until 1965 that was heavily skewed towards keeping the country white and basically homogeneous. Uh, just a few countries in Europe were really allowed to send people here. Uh, not even all Europeans were allowed in. Uh, so, how did that change? How do we go from how do we go from pure white immigration to to this flood um, well we, we have our friend the Jew to thank for that uh, I'm looking at a meme here from, from smoko.com uh, it says Jewish Senator Jacob Javits played a prominent role in the Senate hearings on the open immigration law of 1965 Javits authored an article entitled let us again open the gates that proposed immigration levels of 500,000 per year for 20 years with no restrictions on national origin. Uh, the 1965 open immigration law is presently fulfilling names of the Jewish conspiracy as seen in its effects. The U.S. Census Bureau projects that by the year 2050, European-derived peoples will no longer be a majority of the population in America due to the massive influx of immigrants since the signing of the bill in 1965. The Jews have also given these immigrants a moral mandate to expand both demographically and politically, and expand they do. So this is, when you have an immigration policy designed to eliminate the host population, that is genocide. Uh, so this is white genocide. This is an invasion, and it, the, the aim of this invasion is to kill us, but it's not an organized military invasion. Um, we'll We'll break down further in the evening here exactly how the what the mechanics of this thing are. Um, I thought we'd start off with 
an article by uh, Tom Gilton of NPR.org entitled, In 1965, a conservative tried to keep America white. His plan backfired. Fifty years ago, President Lyndon, Lyndon B. Johnson signed a new immigration law that would change the face of the nation. But that dramatic impact, ironically, was in good part the result of, major, of a major miscalculation by those who actually wanted to limit the bill's effect. The Immigration and Nationality Act, signed at the foot of the Statue of Liberty on October 3rd, 1965, abolished the national origin quota system under which immigrants were chosen on the basis of their race and ancestry. The quota set aside tens of thousands of visas each year for immigrants from Northern and Western Europe, while mainly well, many countries in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East were allocated barely 100 slots each. It was a blatantly discriminatory system. Under the new law, immigrants were to be selected on the basis of their family connections in the United States and the skills and training they could offer with all nationalities treated more or less equally. Fifty years after its passage, it's clear that the law definitely altered the complexion of the U.S. population. In 1965, the immigrant share of the population was at an all-time low. 85% of the population was white, and seven out of eight immigrants coming in were coming from Europe. By 2010, the share of the U.S. population born overseas had tripled, and nine out of 10 immigrants were coming from countries outside of Europe. The law enacted at the height of the, the law was enacted at enacted at the height of the civil rights movement, and although it was motivated by the desire to eliminate discrimination, it was largely overshadowed at the time by the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Even its supporters saw its passage largely as a symbolic victory. The bill that we signed today is not a revolutionary bill, Johnson said at the Statue of Liberty. It does not affect the lives of millions. Uh, but as we've seen, that that has proven to be a big, fat Jewish lie. Uh, the fact that its consequences were unanticipated is due largely to the law's rather curious legislative history. The original version of the bill introduced in the Senate by Philip Hart, a Democrat from Michigan, and in the House by Emanuel Seller, Democrat, New York, gave immigration preference to people whose skills and training would be especially advantageous to the United States. A nation that was built by the immigrants of all lands can ask those who seek admission, what can you do for our country, Johnson said at the 1964 State of the Union Address, but we should not be asking in what country were you born. During the debate over the bill, however, conservatives said it was entirely appropriate to select immigrants on the basis of their national origin. The United States, they argued, was fundamentally an Anglo-Saxon European nation and should stay that way. Senator Sam Irvin, Democrat, North Carolina, said he objected to the idea of giving people from Ethiopia the same right to immigrate to the United States as people from England, France, Germany, or Holland. With all due respect to Ethiopia, Irvin said, I don't know of any contribution that Ethiopia has made to making of America. Right. <laughs> right. It's, it, it's incredible the way the entire... Um, that, that this is only 40 years from, from when the quotas were put in place in the 1920s. It's only 40 years. And, and that's how far the scale tipped in 40 years. Yeah. And the conservatives had an ally in Rep. Michael Fagan, Democrat, New York, 
the famously ornery chairman of the House Immigration Subcommittee. Fagan refused to even hold hearings on the immigration reform bill and relented only after the president gave him the famous Johnson treatment when he took Fagan on Ohio, uh, when he took when uh, he took Fagan to Ohio with him on Air Force One. Uh, in the end, Fagan agreed to support the reform proposal, but he insisted on a key change. Rather than giving preference to those immigrants whose skills were especially advantageous to the United States, Fagan insisted on prioritizing those immigrants who had already had relatives in the United States with the new preference category for adult brothers and sisters of naturalized U.S. citizens. In justifying the change, Fagan told his conservative allies that a family unification preference would favor those, those nationalities already represented in the U.S. population, meaning Europeans. Among the conservative groups persuaded by Fagan's argument was the American Legion, which came out in support of the immigration reform after originally opposing it. But that's the scheme that they've used to flood us with Mexicans. Yes, yeah, and Asians and Africans. Yeah. And in an article praising Fagan's legislative prowess, two Legion representatives said he had devised a naturally operating national origin system, a family unification preference, they argued, that would preserve America's European character. Nobody is quite so apt to be of the same national origins of our present citizens as are members of their immediate families, they wrote. Supporters of the move to eliminate national origin quotas feared they had been outmaneuvered. But the scheme backfired. What Fagan and his allies did not recognize was that the motivation of Europeans to move to the United States was diminishing, while the urge to migrate was growing in Asia, Africa, and other non-European countries. You had a huge pent-up feeling of wanting to come to the New World, says Muzaffar Christie, a senior lawyer at the Migration Policy Institute. Some people from those areas were able to migrate by getting student visas or employer sponsorships or through marriage to a legal resident, and as they gained a foothold in the United States, they invited other family members to join them. By 2010, family unification provisions were accounting for about three-quarters of all U.S. immigration, and they were largely benefiting people from those parts of the world Fagan and his allies considered less desirable. Though it did so in inadvertently, the 1965 Immigration, immigration Act fulfilled a promise to the country's founders but had made, uh, had made, but which had almost forgotten over the next 200 years. The bosom of America is open to receive not only opulent and respectable stranger, George Washington famously declared, but the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions, whom we shall welcome to a participation in our full rights and privileges, if by decency and proprietary, uh, propriety of uh, conduct they appear to merit the enjoyment. Well, well, I would like to know where Washington said that. I've never seen those. Yeah, words. that's that's in this NPR article, and everything I've read from Washington on immigration was he he wanted white people here. The the um, whole um, purpose of the Constitution is is for us, mm -hmm. meaning the Sangers, and our posterity. Uh, I I don't. Yeah, I'd I'd have to look this up, but this this is in the NPR article and. Uh, Christie, himself an immigrant from India, says the 1965 Immigration Act sent a message to the rest of the world that America is not just a place for certain privileged nationalities to come. We are truly the first universal nation, Christie says. 
That may have been the promise of the founding fathers, but it took a long time to realize that. And the 65 Act was critical in making that happen. And and again, like I, I agree with you, I would beg to differ on that. But this is the Jewish NPR slant on it. Yeah, so. this is actually, it, it's actually um, supposed to have been written in a letter from George Washington to Joshua Holmes on December 2nd, 1783 to the members of the volunteer associations and other inhabitants of the Kingdom of Ireland who have lately arrived in the city of New York. That's who it was addressed to. I I don't think that somehow Washington perceived street shitters and sand niggers to be included in his description. I, no, but you you can count on a liberal outfit like NPR to put a spin on this thing and take Washington out of context. But they, they get a lot of this other stuff right on how exactly we got the bait and switch here. Um, but on its 50th anniversary, not everyone is celebrating the law that made America more diverse. In this election season, some commentators have intensified their complaints about immigration. Not only are there too many foreigners, some say they're not white enough. The 1965 Act changed the kind of people who could come through a series of complicated rules to bring in people from cultures as different as, from ours as possible and as poor as possible, said conservative author Ann Coulter in a recent interview on C-SPAN's Book TV. Coulter suggests that liberals may have engineered the post-1965 immigration influx in order to attract new voters for the Democratic Party. But while immigrants do tend to vote Democratic, the rules that brought them here were largely the product of a scheme uh, devised originally to keep different cultures out. As the 1965 Immigration Act demonstrates, laws sometimes have unintended consequences. Well, well, I mean, that might be true, but, you know, the Great Society legislation was also from 1964-1965 and that made all of this possible to a great degree. Yeah, as it said earlier in the article, this this immigration law was overshadowed by the, the Civil Rights Act and um, the Voting Rights Act and things like that. And since between 1960 and 2012, the African population in the United States more than doubled. You know, again, that's the direct result of Johnson's Great Society programs. Absolutely. And the white population actually reproduces less quickly, less rapidly, as it's taxed more oppressively. And, and the taxes from the 60s to the 80s, I would bet they, that they were multiplied three or four times on the average family. Yeah, taxes have gone up, and it, what it's done is white people have to subsidize these apes. Well, right, that subsidy paid for that great society. Which, as it turns out, isn't as great as what you would want it to be. It's great for Jews. Well, yeah, the great society created Detroit. Correct. <laughs> it, it leveled the city. It created Baltimore. The Great Society did that. Yeah, and it's destroying Chicago as we speak and any number of other major cities in this country. 
Okay, well, then I guess moving on, I, I found an article on history.com called U.S. Immigration Since 1965. Uh, we can go over part of this. Uh, the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, also known as the Hart Seller Act, abolished an earlier quota system based on national origin and established a new immigration policy based on reuniting immigrant families and attracting skilled labor to the United States. Over the next four decades, the policies put into effect in 1965 would greatly change the demographic makeup of the American population. As immigrants entering the United States under the new legislation came increasingly from countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, as opposed to Europe. By the early 1960s, calls to reform the U.S. immigration policy had mounted, thanks in no small part to the growing strength of the civil rights movement. At the time, immigration was based on national origins quota system in place since the 1920s, 1924, I believe, under which each nationality was assigned a quota based on its representation in, in past U.S. Census figures. The civil rights movement's focus on equal treatment regardless of race or nationality led many to view the quota system as backward and discriminatory. In particular, Greeks, Poles, Portuguese, and Italians of whom increasing numbers were seeking to enter the U.S., claimed the quota system discriminated against them in favor of Northern Europeans. President John F. Kennedy even took up the immigration reform cause, giving a speech in June 1963, calling the quota system intolerable. Now, in, in Kennedy's defense, everything I've read from John Kennedy, and I, I didn't read anything in the last week or so on this, but what I had read in the past was Kennedy and, and his, his family members, they were... They were trying to get other countries from Europe in here. They weren't trying to get Africans and Asians in here. So that's why they were on board with this. Um, but after Kennedy got taken out, we got the Jew switcheroo from LBJ, and we got the monstrosity known as the 1965 Immigration Act. Um, and after Kennedy's assassination that November, Congress began debating and would eventually pass the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, co-sponsored by Representative Emanuel Seller of New York and Senator Philip Hart of Michigan, and heavily supported by the late president's brother, Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts. During congressional debates, a number of experts testified that little would effectively change under the reform legislation, and it was seen more as a matter of principle to have a more open policy. Indeed, on the signing of the law into, into law in October 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson stated that the act is not a revolutionary bill. It does not affect the lives of millions. It will not reshape the structure of our daily lives or add importantly to either our power or our wealth. Um, immediate impact. In reality, and with the benefit of hindsight, the bill signed in 1965 marked a dramatic break with past immigration policy and would have an immediate and lasting impact. In place of the national origins quota system, the act provided for preferences to be made according to categories such as relatives of U.S. citizens or permanent residents whose skills deemed useful to the United States are refugees of violence or unrest. Though it abolished quotas per se, the system did place caps on per country and total immigration as well as caps on each category. As in the past, family reunification was a major goal, and the new immigration policy would increasingly allow families to uproot themselves 
from other countries and reestablish their lives in the U.S. In the first five years after the bill's passage, immigration to the U.S. from Asian countries, especially those fleeing war-torn Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, would more than quadruple. Under past immigration policies, Asian immigrants had been effectively barred from entry. Other Cold War-era conflicts during the 60s and 70s saw millions of people fleeing poverty or the hardships of communist regimes in Cuba, Eastern Europe, and elsewhere to seek their fortune on American shores. All told, in the three decades following the passage of the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, more than 18 million legal immigrants entered the United States, more than three times the number admitted over the preceding 30 years. By the end of the 20th century, the policies put into effect by the Immigration Act of 1965 had greatly changed the face of the American population. Whereas in the 1950s, more than half of all immigration were Europeans and just 6% were Asians, by the 1990s, only 16% were Europeans and 31% were of Asian descent, while the percentages of Latino and African immigrants had also jumped significantly. Between 1965 and 2000, the highest number of immigrants, 4.3 million to the U.S., came from Mexico, in addition to some 1.4 million from the Philippines, uh, Korea, the Dominican Republic, India, Cuba, and Vietnam were also leading sources of immigrants, each sending between seven and 800,000 over that period. Uh, continuing source of debate. Throughout the 80s and 90s, illegal immigration was a constant source of political debate as immigrants continued to pour into the United States, mostly by land routes through Canada and Mexico. The Immigration Reform Act in 1986 attempted to address the issue by providing better enforcement of immigration policies and creating more possibilities to seek legal immigration. The act included two amnesty programs for unauthorized aliens and collectively granted amnesty to more than three million illegal aliens. Another piece of immigration legislation, the 1990 Immigration Act, modified the expanded and expanded the 1965 Act, increasing the total level of immigration to 700,000. The law also provided for the admission of immigrants from underrepresented countries to increase the diversity of the immigrant flow. The economic recession that hit the country in the early 90s was accompanied by a resurgence of anti-immigration feeling including among lower-income Americans competing for jobs uh, with immigrants willing to work for lower wages. In 1996, Congress passed the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigration Responsibility Act, which addressed border enforcement and the use of social programs by immigrants. And just finishing up here, immigration in the 21st century. In the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, uh, the Homeland Security Act of 2002 created the the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, which took over many immigration services and enforcement functions formerly performed by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, or the INS. With some modifications, the policies put into place by the INS, or the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, are the same ones governing U.S. immigration into the early 21st century. Non-citizens currently entering the United States law, or non-citizens currently enter one of two ways, either by receiving a temporary non-immigrant admission or permanent immigrant admission. A member of the latter category is classified as a lawful and permanent resident and receives a green card granting them eligibility to work in the United States and to eventually apply for citizenship. Uh, there could 
be perhaps no greater reflection of the impact of immigration than the 2008 election of Barack Obama, the son of a Kenyan father and an American mother from Kansas. And there's some speculation that she may have been Jewish, but we won't get into that now. And as the nation's first African-American president, 85 percent white in 1965, the nation's population was one-third minority in 2009, and is on track for a non-white majority by 2042. Going back to Jack Kennedy briefly, he had actually um, discouraged making over the face of America with immigration. He said in 1958 that his immigration proposal does not seek to make over the face of America. He also discouraged third world immigration on the basis that immigrant labor depressed wages and took jobs from native-born, both black and white. That was Kennedy's basic position. Yeah, that's, that's consistent with stuff I've read. So you went from, Kennedy wanted to tweak it so that other Europeans could have a shot at getting in. And what we ended up getting was the Jew version under LBJ and the, the subsequent flood. Um, yeah, I was wondering if you had the, the LBJ clip handy. No, I don't. Did you send it to me? Yeah, a couple of days ago. No, no you don't have it. How did you send that to me? I'm sorry. Uh, over Skype. Okay. I apologize. I'm dropping the ball on this. Let's see what we have here. Okay, well, you're, well, you're looking for that. Um, I was just going to talk briefly about... Uh, the Steinlight plan. Um, so, okay, we've seen this massive uh, influx of, of immigrants, and as the last article finished up with, um, we were one-third minority in 2009, but we're on track for a non-white majority by 2042. So that's quite a change in a very short amount of time. And even some Jews were kind of shocked by that level of change. And one of those is, uh, is Stephen Steinlight, and in October of 2001, Jewish supremacist Stephen Steinlight published a paper entitled The Jewish Stake in America's Changing Demography, uh, Reconsidering a Misguided Immigration Policy. In this paper, which is freely available online, Steinlight admitted that Jews have been behind the United States mass immigration open borders policy with the express intent of reducing white Americans to a minority. However, Steinlight proposes to his fellow Jews that America's demographic trans transformation is happening too quickly. The problem, Steinlight says, is that too quick of a transformation to a non-white majority is a threat to Jewish power. Steinlight says that the source of Jewish power in America is white guilt over the Holocaust, and that this is how they have been able to reign supreme. Steinlight is worried that if whites become a minority too quickly, the new majority of color will no longer have any connection to or feel any guilt over the Holocaust. I think guilt over religion is even more than the Holocaust. I think the idea, the perception that Jesus was a Jew, it is even a stronger shackle. Yeah, I think that's part of it, but that's not what Steinlight was going into. and He was worried that the new non-white majority would no longer want to give Jews special privileges and that they will no longer want to support the state of Israel. Well, well, right. They don't care that Jesus is a Jew, and, 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 and they don't care about the Holocaust. 
They don't give a shit, no. Therefore, Steinlight proposes that non-white immigration must be drastically reduced to manageable levels, which will give the Jews more time to brainwash the newcomers with Jewish propaganda. Yeah, right. About the Steinlight specifically <laughs> mentions the need to reduce Hispanic and Muslim immigration. Steinlight is also concerned that the speed of the demographic transformation is angering white Americans. He is afraid that if the Jews do not slow down the flood of immigration, whites will only become increasingly racially conscious and there will be a violent backlash against the Jews. Uh, by reducing immigration, the Jews can pacify whites. He also proposes another tool to prevent white solidarity, a revival of American patriotism. Civic nationalism must be revived so that loyalty to America will outweigh any ethnic loyalties among the Gentile populace. And that's true. Trump did that. I mean, so many yep. Americans are beholden to Trump that they can't see what's going on. That's my, yep, that is my point. In the end, Steinlight says a white minority in America is still the goal, but Jews must do it more gradually. Reagan had done that too. That, that, that um, surge in American patriotism that accompanied Ronald Reagan into office. Same pattern all over again. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Trump and Reagan are very comparable. Wave the flag, but give amnesty to brown people and promise greater border security. It, it, it's almost an exact replay of the 80s. Well, you actually have two clips here for me. Uh, I found two clips in my Skype. I don't check my Skype. I'm sorry. You could beat me up for that. I have um, an end types times update, May 18th at Camp of the Saints. Before that, you sent LBJ's remarks on a signing of the 1965 yep. Immigration Act. It's yes. six minutes. Let's hear it. Yep. The president's remarks upon signing the immigration bill on Liberty Island in New York City, October 3rd, 1965. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Ambassador Goldberg, uh, distinguished members of the leadership of the Congress, distinguished governors and mayors, my fellow countrymen. We have called the Congress here this afternoon not only to mark a very historic occasion, but to settle a very old issue that is in dispute. That issue is to what congressional uh, district does Liberty Island really belong? Congressman Forbstein or Congressman Gallagher? It will be settled by whomever of the two can walk first to the top of the Statue of Liberty. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. It does not affect the lives of millions. It will not reshape the structure of our daily lives or really add importantly to either our wealth or our power. Yet it is still one of the most important acts of this Congress and of this administration. For it does repair a very deep and painful flaw in the fabric of American justice. It corrects a cruel and enduring wrong in the conduct of the American nation. Speaker McCormick and Congressman Seller, more than uh, almost 40 years ago, first pointed that out in their maiden speeches in the Congress. And this measure that we will sign today 
will really make us truer to ourselves, both as a country and as a people. It will strengthen us in a hundred unseen ways. And I have come here to thank personally each member of the Congress <coughs> who labored so long and so valiantly to make this occasion come true today and to make this bill a reality. I cannot mention all their names, for it would take uh, much too long. But my gratitude and that of this nation belongs to the 89th Congress. We are in debt, too, to the vision of the late beloved President John Fitzgerald Kennedy and to the support given to this measure by the then Attorney General and now Senator Robert F. Kennedy. In the final days of consideration, this bill had no more able champion than the present Attorney General, Nicholas Katzenbach, who with New York's own Manny Seller and Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts and Congressman Fehan of Ohio and Senator Mansfield and Senator Dirksen constituting the leadership of the Senate and Senator Javits helped to guide this bill to passage along with the help of the members sitting in front of me today. This bill says simply that from this day forth, those wishing to immigrate to America shall be admitted on the basis of their skills and their close relationships to those already here. This is a simple test, and it is a fair test. Those who can contribute most to this country, to its growth, to its strength, to its spirit, will be the first that are admitted to this land. The fairness of this standard is so self-evident that we may well wonder that it has not always been applied. Yet the fact is that for over four decades, the immigration policy of the United States has been twisted and has been distorted by the harsh injustice of the national origins quota system. Under that system, the ability of new immigrants to come to America depended upon the country of their birth. Only three countries were allowed to supply 70% of all the immigrants. Families were kept apart because a husband or a wife or a child had been born in the wrong place. Men of needed skill and talent were denied entrance because they came from Southern or Eastern Europe or from one of the developing continents. This system violated the basic principle of American democracy, the principle that values and rewards each man on the basis of his merit as a man. It has been un-American in the highest sense because it has been untrue to the faith that brought thousands to these shores even before we were a country. Today, with my signature, this system is abolished. 
we can now believe that it will never again shatter the gate to the American nation with the twin barriers of prejudice and privilege. America was Our beautiful America was built by a nation of strangers from a hundred different places or more. They have poured forth into an empty land, joining and blending in one mighty and irresistible tide. The land flourished because it was fed from so many sources, because it was nourished by so many cultures and traditions and peoples. And from this experience, almost unique in the history of nations, has come America's attitude toward the rest of the world. We, because of what we are, feel safer and stronger in a world as varied as the people who make it up, a world where no country rules another. And all countries can deal with the basic problems of human dignity and deal with those problems in their own way. Now, under the monument which has welcomed so many to our shores, the American nation returns to the finest of its traditions today. The days of unlimited immigration are past. But those who do come will come because of what they are and not because of the land from which they sprung. When the earliest settlers poured into a wild continent, there was no one to ask them where they came from. The only question was, were they sturdy enough to make the journey? Were they strong enough to clear the land? Were they enduring enough to make a home for freedom? And were they brave enough to die for liberty if it became necessary to do so? And so it has been through all the great and testing moments of American history our history this year we see in Vietnam. Men there are dying. Men named Fernandez and Zajai and Zelenko and Mariano and McCormick. Neither the enemy who killed them nor the people whose independence they have fought to save ever asked them where they or their parents came from. They were all Americans. It was for free men and for America that they gave their all, they gave their lives themselves. And by eliminating that same question as a test for immigration, the Congress proves ourselves worthy of those men and worthy of our own traditions as a nation. 
So it is in that spirit that I declare this afternoon to the people of Cuba that those who seek refuge here in America will find it. The dedication of America to, to, to our traditions as an asylum for the oppressed is going to be upheld. I have directed the Departments of State and Justice and Health and Education and Welfare to immediately make all the necessary arrangements to permit those in Cuba who seek freedom to make an orderly entry into the United States of America. Our first concern will be with those Cubans who have been separated from their children and their parents and their husbands and their wives and that are now in this country. Our next concern is with those who are imprisoned for political reasons. And I will send to the Congress tomorrow a request for supplementary funds of $12,600,000 to carry forth the commitment that I'm making today. I'm asking the Department of State to seek through the Swiss government immediately the agreement of the Cuban government in a request to the President of the International Red Cross Committee. The request is for the assistance of the committee in processing the movement of refugees from Cuba to Miami. Miami will serve as a port of entry and a temporary stopping place for refugees as they settle in other parts of this country. And to all the voluntary agencies in the United States, I appeal for their continuation and expansion of their magnificent work. Their help is needed in the reception and the settlement of those who choose to leave Cuba. The federal government will work closely with these agencies in their task of charity and brotherhood. And I want all the people of this great land of ours to know of the really the enormous contribution which the compassionate citizens of Florida have made to humanity and to decency. And all states in this union can join with Florida now in extending the hand of helpfulness and humanity to our Cuban brothers. The lesson of our times is sharp and clear in this movement of people from one land to another. Once again, it stamps the mark of failure on a regime when many of its citizens voluntarily choose to leave the land of their birth for a more hopeful home in America. The future holds little hope for any government where the present holds no hope for the people. And so, we Americans will welcome these Cuban people. For the tides of history run strong, and in another day they can return to their homeland to find it cleansed of terror and free from fear. Over my shoulders here you can see Ellis Island whose vacant corridors echo today the joyous sound of long-ago voices. And today we can all believe that the lamp of this grand old lady is brighter today 
and the golden door that she guards gleams more brilliantly in the light of an increased liberty for the people from all countries of the globe. Thank you very much. Well, I'm sorry about that. That was um, a little confusing. One number in my media player told me that that segment was 6 minutes and 12 seconds. And the playdown meter said it was over 14 minutes. What the heck? Yeah, but, it was a 14-minute clip, but I, I, it, it's historically, it's a very significant audio clip. Um, again, that was, they signed that bill on Ellis Island, you know, basically right at the foot of the Statue of Liberty. And as you could hear him, almost between the lines there, you could hear him saying that, this. okay, on the one hand, he says, this isn't going to change much. It's not going to affect the lives of millions. But on the other hand, he's like, People are going to be coming from all over the place now. It, we don't care about where you come from. It's what you can do. And that is, to me, that's very Jewy. I'm, I'm convinced that Lyndon Johnson was a crypto Jew. Well, somebody made the remark in my chat room while the, while the tape was going that it sounded like a speech from Chabad Lubavitch. Yes, that, that's, that was my, I, I listened to it a couple times, and that was exactly the, the, the impression I got. And... Just to reiterate, so let's 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 go back to Revelation twenty, uh, chapter twenty, verse seven. Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Okay, that was the Jews, and shall and on in verse eight, and shall go out and deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle. What was Johnson doing there at the foot of the Statue of Liberty? Right, he was basically calling <laughs> those nations against the camp of the saints. And and it was um, done on the same terms uh, that they've been crying for 200 and some odd years, liberty, fraternity, and equality fraternity, our Cuban brothers. I don't have any Cuban brothers. No, the Cubans are not our brothers. Um they're the they're Satan, and he was calling out to Satan to gather them to battle, and he started right then and there. Well, well that right, very, and that very minute. Yep, I, I lived the I, I lived my my childhood experience is observing the results of this legislation. I, I mean, all right, I grew up in Jersey City, right? When I was um. When I was five and six years old, and I remember this very clearly, Jersey City was almost entirely white. The only non-whites, it, it, it had Anglo-Irish and Germans in some neighborhoods and Poles in others and Italians in others, right? And it was a beautiful city and everybody was apparently white, let's put it that way. And except for one small neighborhood, of, of you know maybe a half square mile on on the east side which was black and that was 1965 and by 1975 Jersey City was filled with Puerto Ricans Filipinos um, Pakistanis um, Indian dot heads which are different than Pakistanis right Pakistanis are mostly Muslims and Indian dot heads Hindus right they're, they're different they wear um, 
funny dots on her foreheads and they wear their living room curtains out around the streets that's how they dress in in their draperies um no no it's it's jersey the whole face of the city i lived in and grew up in changed in 10 years it changed drastically and that was the result of this legislation and and that's how long it took jersey city became like half non-white in 10 12 years it was done entire neighborhoods were taken over by filipinos and or 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 by indians entire schools were taken over by blacks and and puerto ricans it yeah, was it, it was an incredible transformation to me and and to actually witness all that and see exactly. it all firsthand. I mean, I got around the city. My, my my father was a contractor. He took me with him all the time. I, I by the time I was um, twelve years old, I would bet I spent at least one evening in practically every bar in town. I swear, I saw the whole city, and and I saw all this transpire right before my eyes. That this, the transformation that this immigration bill caused. So okay, so we're seeing this transformation. So what's the what's the effect of this transformation? Is it for good or ill? Well, I think we we all pretty much know it's not for the good. But what exactly is going on here? Okay, so all these all these alien people are flooding in. So what what's really the what are the mechanics of all this? What what's what's going to be the net outcome of it? Well, let's start out with let's take a look at IQ by race, and we know that. IQ is correlated correlates to race by about eighty five percent. Sure, well, there. Well, it should be a hundred percent. It it they change yeah. the IQ tests. They yeah. change the so, IQ tests. So there's a very we'll just suffice it to say very strong correlation between race and IQ. And let's just do a little quick breakdown here of IQ by race. Um, I found this on the internet I don't know, a couple of years ago. And I don't think anybody's going to really dispute these numbers. So um, Ashkenazi Jews, 115. East Asians, 106. Whites, the average IQ, 102. Inuits and Eskimos, 91. Southeast Asians, 87. American Indians, 87. Non-white Hispanics, 86. Coco, a Western Moland Gorilla, 85. American Blacks. 85 and the blacks in america it says they have a 24 percent white admixture so they've got some european ancestry you know well well let me get you know real quick let me give you a rundown and and i hate to interrupt but the, those numbers that those numbers are kind of true by the jewish iq tests right yeah but jews and asians should never score higher than whites on an iq test and i want to run give you a quick rundown why and and what I'm about to read is probably about four short paragraphs from a friend and former member of the Christogenia Forum. The gentleman that wrote this actually has a postgraduate degree in English literature. And he wrote that in brief, and, and this can all be documented, 
with a few Google searches. In brief, the original standard IQ test was known as the Stanford Binet test, and it was yep. conceived by a white man to basically test aspects of intelligence that were of value to white society. It was a comprehensive test that gave a single score of overall intelligence and how we value it. In it, there was also a clear subtext of gauging moral and ethical standards. The Jews didn't like it because they tended to score much lower on it than whites and felt that it was culturally biased. Enter the Edomite Romanian-born Jew David Wexler, a psychologist who worked in New York City's mental hospital, Bellevue, which was chock full of insane Jews. It was his belief that these inmates at Bellevue were actually more intelligent than they appeared that motivated him to redefine intelligence. The first thing he did was throw out 94% of the Stanford Binet test and concentrated on 6% of the equation. Then he divided intelligence into separate math and verbal scores. He de-emphasized mental speed and accuracy and rewarded global thinking ability and awarded partial credit for wrong answers. Reading between the lines, he rewarded people who could bullshit their way through the test, which gave a distinct advantage to Jews who have a natural fluidity in verbal sophistry. The Wexler test essentially was testing how well an individual would perform as a Talmudic rabbi. That, that's his evaluation. The Stanford Binet test showed a persistent gap between men and women with men always scoring significantly higher, especially on math-related problems and abstract thought. Wexler's test eliminated that gap, and he proclaimed that men and women were actually equal in intelligence, a mantra that was then taken up by Jews to fuel the feminist movement. Through all his tinkering, Wexler got the results he was looking for. An IQ test that put Ashkenazi Jews like himself and the inmates at Bellevue on top, followed by the Chinese and then followed by the white race. This was obviously the purpose of the publication of the now infamous book, The Bell Curve, written by the Jew Charles Murray, which readers at American Renaissance use repeatedly to show how dumb Negroes are and how smart and valuable Jews are to our society. It was the Wexler test that magically gave Negroes the average IQ of 85, only 15 points below the average white. The Stanford Binet test showed their IQ to be closer to 65, which is in the range of Coco the Gorilla. And that's as much as I'll read of this individual's evaluation of the Wexler IQ tests, which are relatively recently introduced and have relatively recently transplanted the traditional Stanford Binet IQ test at, as the, um, the, the, the premier valid value or, or I'm sorry the premier measure of intelligence in our society. That's a rundown. Okay so, um, yeah, yeah, we had found a paper by uh, uh, this Lynn person, and it more or less uh, confirms what you were just talking about there. And you know, in reality, whether Jews are one fifteen or whether they're one o four, 
for my for my purposes tonight, that's not really so important. Um, we'll get to where I consider to be the uh, kind of the cutoff point here in a little bit. Um, okay, we'll, we'll we'll get to that shortly. So, well, we I just felt it important to clarify that. That's all. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's fine. But um, you know, for me, it's not really a, that. That's not really a critical issue. But would Jews? Can I believe that Jews would skew the results? Of course, you know, but. Either way, they're above my cutoff line, and um, blacks are below it, whether they're 85 or whether they're 65. Um, and, and that's not a huge difference. Um, so just, just to finish this list that I found, um, so Middle East and North Africans, 84. African blacks, 67. And that's probably more along the lines with the the American blacks really are is probably in the 60s. Um, Australian Aborigines, 62. Kalahari Bushmen, 54. Congo Pygmies, 54. So, and where's Coco? I'm sorry. Yeah, Coco was 85. <laughs> so Coco is smarter than the than the niggers in Africa. But okay, so the but 102 or 115. That's not really the cutoff line to maintain civilization. So um, let's just take these ballpark numbers as true, and we're going to find out kind of where, what what the real delineation line is here. So uh, I've got an article here from uh, neociceronianTimes.wordpress.com entitled, Why the Decline of America's Average IQ is a Cause for Concern. Uh, IQ is one of those things that some people don't like to talk about. Yet, for so many reasons and in so many ways, it is an important concept on which so many things in life turn. It is well known that there is a strong positive correlation between IQ and educational level, lifetime earnings, success in your chosen vocation, personal confidence, and perhaps surprisingly, success in social interactions and relationships. In general, I think people except that a higher IQ is a good thing to have. What causes problems, however, is when we start talking about the genetic component of IQ. After a long period in which social scientists sought to downplay or eliminate the notion of this genetic component, more recent studies in genetics and heritability seem to have consistently found that the genetic component of IQ makes up around 60 to 80% of this trait. Certainly, there are other factors involved, such as childhood diet or early childhood education and so forth. However, these are not nearly as important as many social scientists had thought, or rather had hoped they would be. However, it is when you delve into the realm of talking about group IQ, the statistics of IQ variability between different racial and ethnic groups, that you really begin to run afoul of the sensibilities of today's modern egalitarians, and other SJW-influenced outlets. Indeed, discussing IQ is the single most contentious element in the debates over human biodiversity. In many circles, the very concept of genetic IQ differences, especially between groups, leads to the sort of self-censorship that causes some to wonder if it's racist to even talk about whether there are genes for IQ or not. It's acceptable to observe that the reasons blacks on average run faster than whites is due to genetic variations. However, when you start observing that American whites have an average IQ of around 103 and that average American blacks are around 185, you get put into the punishment box. 
yet IQ effects are real. This has been uh, most extensively investigated in recent years by Richard Lynn and uh, Tatu uh, Van Hannen, uh, psychologist and political scientist, respectively, uh, culminating in their, their books IQ and Wealth of Nations and IQ Global Inequality. Um, they observed the strong positive correlation between average national IQ and national wealth is expressed through per capita GDP, GDP growth and other economic indicators. Basically, the higher the average IQ of a nation, the richer, more productive, and more innovative uh, the nation's economy is. That so should not, be hard to figure out just through simple observation. Yeah, so it's not magic soil that makes one country better than the other. You know, well, it's, it's not natural resources. It's it. Well, it's, no, it's, that's all a lie. Compare the white South Africans to the black South Africans. Compare the they, white Australians to the black Australians. What the hell? Yeah. And as can be seen graphically in the map above, as well as in tabular form, especially the uh, table four, uh, and one of Lynn's papers on the subject, and you can also, there's a link to it here in the article, and I'll have this up on my blog, I'll have links to it. Uh, I mean, we can well, compare Detroit and Cedar Rapids. <laughs> yeah, <the> well, <laughs> I've even seen the, the, the meme on, that's floated around, you know, you compare Detroit to a, a suburb of Detroit, Livonia, Michigan, and all the white people, it looks like they moved out of Detroit and into Livonia, and it's just night and day. Right. It's either, you know, Livonia is first world, and Detroit is a third world shithole. Well, well that's, I, I don't, you know, these people spend all their time arguing and in, in, with papers and words and pens and paper, pe pencils, and, and they don't look out the window. Uh, I mean... The, the reality is right out the window. <laughs> Why can't... I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, so... Okay, so there are other factors besides economic prowess which correlate positively with national IQ. Uh, for instance, if you compare them with the list for IQ given above, you can infer that the national IQ and per capita scientific publications correlate fairly strongly. So do national IQ and patent applications per capita. Though harder to quantify, I believe it could also be safely said that there is a positive correlation between national IQ and such things as social stability, the quality and extent of physical infrastructure, and the overall quality of life in a country. I suspect most people who have traveled internationally would vouch for these. And to use your analogy, just look out the, the window and you can see what's going on. And the article goes on to say, granted, IQ is not the only factor in all this. There are other components uh, to these which help to explain some obvious outliers. For instance, I see no reason to think that North Koreans are any less intelligent than their co-ethnics in South Korea. You know, they're around 106. Yet the North obviously doesn't produce much in the way of science or infrastructure or, well, anything aside from what it can steal. This can be chalked up to the Looney Tune crazy government they have. Otherwise, one can reasonably ask, why it is that if IQ is so important for economic and social success, then how come the East Asian countries like China, Japan, and Korea didn't ace everyone else the way Europe did? Why didn't East Asian countries develop high science, hit the Industrial Revolution, and become the people who made the modern world? I believe the answer can be found by assessing some cultural differences between them and the West. 
Westerners combine traits of high intelligence, assertiveness, cultural confidence, and creativity, which no other civil civilizational group on the planet can match. And and that stuff that the Stanford Binet test measured in its IQ, in its IQ testing, but that the Jewish Wechsler test doesn't. So whites are being shortchanged on the IQ test. That that's an important thing to point out. That that's oh. I had to get that in there. Of course it is. Yeah. Asians, Asians, had, Asians had the intelligence, but not the cultural confidence. Europe was eager to explore the world and share its culture with everyone else. Well, China and Japan took oftentimes drastic steps to shut out or at least minimize the cultural interaction with the foreigners who they encountered. Um, in the same vein, East Asians do not tend to demonstrate as much genuine abstract creativity as Westerners do. Eastern arts, while beautiful and technically very advanced, rarely show the flashes of ingenuity which Western arts did. Likewise, Eastern philosophies tended to be grounded in moral and ethical questions and eschewed the sort of esoteric speculation which Greek and other Western philosophical systems uh, pursued. Alter uh, alternatively, one could look at small fraction theory whose exposition includes a discussion of why East Asian countries don't outperform white countries despite their IQ advantage. A theory proposed but noted as not being supported by quantitative evidence, is that East Asian IQ distribution has a, a, a larger uh, kurtosis value, i.e. it's narrower, fewer outliers, and more clustering around the mean than that for other groups. Um, if this were the case, then East Asian distribution would be such that while their average IQ would be slightly higher than most for European groups, they would still produce relatively fewer really high IQ individuals who are responsible for the really innovative scientific entrepreneurial and philosophical ideas that are the practical demonstrations of creative genius. Um, at any rate, it's obvious IQ is important, and yes, I'm getting around to the point about the declining American national IQ. Uh, as a result of these IQ clusters, we can divide the countries of the world into four basic groups. Innovators. These are countries with average national IQs ranging from 96 to 108. Typically, these nations are characterized by advanced infrastructure and educational systems, lower corruption, and higher quality administration, and they contribute to scientific and technological advances to an outsized degree compared to the rest of the world. Maintainers. These are countries ranging from 88 to 95. While they are uh, most certainly capable of keeping the lights on and the water flowing, for the most part, they don't really contribute much to the development of new technologies or scientific output. They can maintain, but do not advance to any great degree, the level of human civilization, either technically or morally or philosophically. That, that's where all the Asian nations are. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah and then, yeah, then the last group is the stragglers. Uh, these countries range between, or no, wait, there's second to last is the stragglers. These countries range between 80 and 87, their levels of social organization, infrastructure, and administrative competency are low, while corruption and socially dysfunctional behaviors are high. These societies aren't necessarily falling apart, but they aren't exactly successful by any reasonable metric either. And then you've got the basket cases. These are countries with average IQs below 80. Most of them are either failing states or else they would be if they were not propped up by extensive foreign aid. Uh, they are generally characterized by one or two core cities with some infrastructure and organization, 
surrounded by a hinterland of tribal divisions or areas under effective control of petty warlords. The cities, and therefore government, are often controlled by a small clique of compromised of the hundreds or thousands out of the multiple millions of the populace, with IQs high enough to allow them to understand and apply things like administration, science, and economics. So here's the point about declining American IQ. The listed numbers for the USA's average national IQ is 98. Respectable enough and in line with many European nations. However, this number represents a decline from the standard 100, which has represented the average American IQ from around the time when the Stanford-Binet tests were first adopted in the U.S. and around the time of World War I. For reasons I will discuss in a moment, the average national the average American IQ is thought to have declined even further, possibly as low as 95 or 96. This is troublesome because this would represent a crossing of the threshold between America as an innovator nation and America as a maintainer nation. And what is the cause of this? Frankly, the single greatest factor in declining average American IQ is the introduction of large numbers of low IQ immigrants from straggler and basket cases parts of the world especially Latin America and the Middle East. A country's population is like a cake. The quality of the individual ingredients will determine the quality of the overall product. From an IQ standpoint, when you introduce millions of low IQ immigrants, you lower the overall IQ of the country. And as we can see from Lynn's data, the average IQs in the Latin American countries, which send the most immigrants to the USA, are average between 79 and 87. So far, the number of immigrants from the Middle Eastern countries has been small compared to the Latin American influx, but considering that the average IQs of these nations range from 85 to 90, the plans by the U.S. government to increase refugee resettlement bodes poorly for long-term American average IQ as well. And they've got a map, it's uh, got an IQ map of the country, and, and mostly what it, what it shows is the South has been hit hard by the Latin American influx and their, their IQ is dropping. So, and the, the northern part of the country, Minnesota, North Dakota, Iowa, Montana, Maine, Vermont, those are the higher IQ states. Massachusetts, I believe, is number one. Minnesota, two, I think, overall. Iowa's like five. Uh, Wisconsin's up there. Um, so we see two things of interest from an HBD perspective. The first is that the IQ by state appears to positively correlate with the percentage of white population and therefore negatively correlates with percentage of non-Asian minority or NAM population. The five highest IQ states are Massachusetts, 73.7% uh, white plus 6.3% East Asian, New Hampshire, 93.9% white, North Dakota, 90% white, Vermont, 94.3% white, and Minnesota, 83.1% white, plus 4% East Asian. The other really high IQ states like Maine, Montana, and Iowa are also white as Google's workforce. Converse, the lower IQ states are found in the South and the Southwest. The South is explained by the relatively high percentage of blacks, you know, and those are quoted at 85, but as you said, that's probably a dubious claim. Uh, the Southwest, on the other hand, has absorbed the bulk of the influx from Latin America. In both cases, the componency of white IQ, which we've seen from the northern states to be in the 103 to 104 range, 
is diluted by the lower IQ portions of their populations. And this affects the nation as a whole. We can't simply isolate certain elements of our population. Everyone, white, black, or Hispanic, contributes to the tangibles of American society. Everything from cultural output to crime rate. And as our average IQ continues to decline, our popular culture will continue to um, cause in. Uh, we've seen, we've gone from classical music to Khloe Kardashian in just a few short decades. Uh, the cultural acceptability of being smart and getting into things like science and engineering will decline. Discouraging academic achievement because it's acting white is already a problem in both the black and Hispanic communities. And we'll see scientific and technical achievement begin to fall away. As America becomes a maintainer nation, we'll see corruption grow worse and social cohesion and organization will weaken. Well, well that's right. What I see is a breakdown of infrastructure and, and not highways and, and buildings, but power plants and logistics systems for, for the food industry, logistics systems for, for the building industries. And as more and more um, blacks and Hispanics get the, the, the majority of the jobs in those industries, those inju- industries are going to fall apart. Yeah, well, yeah, everything will fall apart eventually. You're, um, you're going to wake up one day to your pow- local power company will have hired so many niggers because there aren't enough whites that you're going to wake up and you're not going to have power. Yet you're not. You're going to turn the lights on and nothing's going to happen. That, that's what's going to happen. You're going to go to the gas station and and there's going to be no gasoline be, because people can't run the refinery. Yeah, that's that's already happening in South Africa, and that will happen eventually here too if we're not careful. Right. And, um, the reason for this is oh, is it's because it's I, IQ declines. The proportion of the population exhibiting IQs above 130, the point at which you begin to find truly gifted individuals who make significant creative and innovative contributions across all various fields of study, grows smaller and smaller. Yet it is exactly this high IQ portion of the population which really contributes in an outsized way to the stability and well-being of its nation. Uh, He goes on to say, I won't bore the reader with an in-depth explanation of statistical math. Uh, that underlie the, what I'll be saying below. Suffice it to say that large population IQ, like much else in nature and industry, maps to a normal distribution, a.k.a. the bell curve. And the standard deviations for this curve are roughly 15 points each. Um, so standard, uh, average IQ or you know, 100 for Americans, so 115 is a standard, and then 130 is two deviations up. Um, so the proportion of really intelligent individuals whose IQ is greater than 130 in any society is actually fairly small. But when the average IQ is lower, this proportion drops off in a non-linear fashion. You can have a very large population, but if your average national IQ is low, you still won't have as many of these really high IQ people who move a society forward. Uh, let's look at the contrast between the U.S. using the official quoted National IQ is 98, and a population of 324 million, and we'll compare that with India, who's got a national average IQ of 81, and they've got about a 1.3 billion population. So when you plug in the numbers, the U.S. will have 1.64% of its population at IQ 130 or above, which translates to 5,313 
1,600 individuals. India, on the other hand, will have 0.05% of its population at IQ 130 or above, which calculates to 646,500 individuals. Despite quadrupling the USA in population, India has just a little over 12% of the number of high IQ individuals in the USA, and a good share of them have moved to the US, UK, or other Western nations. That's the power of the bell curve and why IQ decline should alarm any thinking person. When you add low IQ populations to a country, you are disproportionately adding to the low end of the bell curve while adding very few high-end individuals. And even if the absolute number of IQ 130 or above individuals remain the same, the fact that you are adding millions of low IQ individuals, many of whom will end up as voters, means more people who are takers rather than contributors, more people who would rather the government pay for welfare than scientific research, and who would rather spend money on EBT cards instead of NASA. A higher proportion of lower IQ individuals will have a depressive effect on the ability of high IQ individuals to act on their creativity, entrepreneurship, and independent thinking. As we see in many African countries, the large numbers of low IQ members of a society absorb pretty much all the time and energy of the small, high IQ population which has to take care of them. Uh, taken to the extreme, you'll find a situation not unlike that depicted depicted in the uh, CM Cornblues marching moron stories. Well, well, this might all be a good thing because NASA just lied to us about everything anyway. Well, would, yeah, but I'd rather spend money on that than <laughs> I'm just being sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. That that's a topic for another night, I suppose. Yes, um, sir. <laughs> The obvious answer for how to arrest this trend is to get serious about sending as many of the, of the masses of these immigrants home and replacing with our current invade, uh, invade the world, invite the world immigration system with one which selects for talented high IQ individuals who will be net positives for us rather than net drains, you know, i.e. the palmer worm, the canker worm. Well, well right. This is their solution, but they would take high IQ individuals from any population, so it yeah, but you know that this is just a standard scientific type article, and but we don't need millions of foreigners to take low-skilled jobs, drain the treasury through welfare, and commit a disproportionate share of crimes. It would be wise, however, to entice the smaller numbers of high IQ individuals from other nations, who would be more easily assimilable, and would contribute in ways that the large percent of our own population could not. But yeah, you know, I I think that's BS. We don't need non-whites in here. Um, but uh, the numbers, he, he used the Stanford Binet test. It's, uh, well, well he's saying that he's using numbers from the Stanford Binet test, but I don't know that the Stanford Binet test is still being given, so I don't know how the, how, how he makes that claim. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I just found this article last night, so I didn't have time to... Right. Um, no, I just, I'm just raising that issue. I, I mean, it really don't matter, like you said, for your purposes, but I seriously dispute the fact that the, the the asserted fact that Asians are more intelligent than whites or that Jews are more intelligent than whites. That they have um, intelligence in certain areas where not as many whites reach a given level, but they're only in certain narrow areas, which allow them to do very well on their Wexler intelligence test, their modern intelligence tests. 
when historically they didn't do so well on Stanford Binet. Correct. Yeah, and debating whether or not Europeans are a few IQ points smarter than an East Asian, I think if you look at the overall picture, no one creates civilizations like white people do. And there's no question about that. And so really for the, the purpose of the discussion here tonight is, well, how can we maintain our our excellent white European civilization? Well, where, where's the breaking point with that? So we're going to move. We got kind of a hint there in that last article, but we're going to get more now into kind of where the rubber hits the road here in, in this next one. Um, this is kind of a short little uh, post on a website I had found uh, a couple of days ago. Um, they asked the question on uh, Quora.com, um, what is the minimum average IQ or average group IQ needed before civilization can independently arise? Base your answer on an IQ test form norm for today's population. So, i.e., it's probably the slanted one the Jew has given out. But either way, we'll we'll get a pretty good. We're going to get a good good baseline here. Um, and and th this is the answer given by Kurt Doolittle, philosopher, truth, natural law, economics, politics, and more. Um, he's answered 650 questions on the site, and he's had 474,000 views. So, um, okay, so here, here's his answer. So the rules, um, Pareto always rules, and that, that's like a graph or a chart, whatever. 20% um, of the people always and must control 80% of the assets in order to organize a, a polity into voluntary, uh, non-slave serve production. Cities are markets. And cities are markets. Are markets formed by trade, and trade requires volition. And markets and volition make innovation possible, if not only because the incentive exists. Uh, two, roughly speaking, you need the top 20% of your population able to calculate in whatever means of calculation is available to you in law, in accounts, in seasons, etc. Three, empirically, it appears that it's pretty hard unless 20% is above 95, the ability to learn by being taught without extraordinary repetition by the teacher, um, above 105 IQ, to repair a system or a machine or a tool, above 115 to learn by reading, about 122 to invent a machine or a tool, above 130 to synthesize new ideas and communicate them, above 140 to originate an idea in the market for ideas. Although I think that limit is now approaching 150. Uh, four, it depends greatly upon the means of economic productivity available to the population. Lowest IQs for pastoral, um, higher for agrarian, higher for commercial, higher for industrial, higher for technological, and assumedly higher for post-technological. Worse, as technology increases, the value of lower of value of lower IQs decreases. And worse, as the distribution of technology increases, the value of lower IQs decreases. This is the world's upcoming next great disaster, if it isn't already. Um, five, if you can import the knowledge of the 140s, 130s, and 120s into your group, then you can benefit from the knowledge and technology invented elsewhere. Um, six, what appears today, and this is the telling uh, point here, is that it's extremely difficult to modernize a country with IQs under 97. And I think that's where the magic number is. 
And I think the real number is 105. Uh, the reason being that the window of opportunity for those countries to modernize and develop middle class or market behaviors because of their ability to import institutions and technologies and knowledge has passed. I'm almost certain of it. By the way, thank the communists for destroying that window of opportunity. If your country has an aggregate IQ under 97 and certainly below 90, it will be very difficult for the simple reason that there is no human capital unused in relation to the available means of producing uh, the profitability necessary to create a voluntary organization of production, um, a market economy and a middle class to run it. And the last point, uh, seven, as far as I know, the primary competitive asset of a country has going forward is A, hom homogeneity, B, median IQ of uh, 105 or greater than 105, and a militia army dedicated to protecting both. That means China, Korea, Japan win. Europe could have, but between immigration and civil war, we have already, and I've talked to leading people about this repeatedly, lost something on the order uh, to one half, to one standard deviation between 800 and today, or 1800 and today, through a uh, asymmetric reproduction. And we have lost the rest between 1965 and today through immigration. Cheers. Knowledge is not always pleasant. Well, well, okay. Well, well, I doubt if on this basis China, Korea, and Japan win because they don't have that creative ability. And if the West, if the West disappears, China, Korea, and Japan are going to go into the same state of decline. They have to because they won't develop any new technologies, and and they won't be able to meet new challenges. No, but what, he, what he's saying is the Asian societies are at least gearing themselves around a model that could actually work versus Europe, which is like hit the self-destruct switch with this immigration of... Yeah, right. Homogeneity is a huge advantage, of course. Yeah. It, it, um, a homogenous society lo loves one another and works together, or, <laughs> or at least cooperates. I don't know if the Chinese really understand love the way we do in the West. I, I doubt that they do. The, the um, yeah, the IQ thing can be argued all day long, but that that's the the bottom line as I see it. I've already expressed that as more blacks and Mexicans get into um, positions, technical positions, management positions, not that they can really master the technical positions but a lot of them can be trained just to go through the motions even if they don't really understand the equipment and and as more of them attain those positions and there's less and less rights whites working for these these large companies these large industries that run our infrastructure our infrastructure is going to crumble it's it's destined to crumble maybe that's how babylon falls i don't know i can't tell the future but it it's definitely on the map for the future it, if we keep going in in the rate in in the direction that we're going well that's kind of what i'm hinting at and this last article um i'm going to run this by you and then uh, we can we can debate this for a few minutes so um, this is one I had found the other day, uh, maybe two or three days ago, and it was a real eye-opener. Um, uh, it's from the uh, 
It's from uh, Staffan's Personality Blog. WordPress. Com. It's a 2013 uh, blog post, basically entitled "The IQ Breaking Point: How Civilized Society Is Maintained or Lost." Um, it's a well-known fact that intelligence corresponds to various kinds of life outcomes at the individual level, such as income, education, drug abuse, criminality, etc. A little less known fact is that national average IQs correspond to similar outcomes on the national level. Uh, this has been shown by, among others, uh, psychologist Richard Lynn and uh, Tatu uh, Van Hanen, who have found staggering correlations between national IQ and things like health, education, income, crime, corruption, democracy. Um, and they, they list a, you know, a, a pretty high correlation for all of those uh, between IQ and, and, and all those different uh, categories. Um, so he's like, anyway, okay, you get the picture. The basic requirements for modern civilization, democracy, education, wealth, health, and lack of crime and corruption are strongly related to national IQs. Okay, and then the, the next section is titled here, IQ 97, The Breaking Point. Seeing these correlations, it's easy to assume that national IQ averages would correspond to specific degrees of development. That South Korea with an IQ of 107 would be much more civilized than Australia at 98, which in turn would be fairly similar to Russia or some other country at 97. But looking at the stats, this is far from the case. Instead, it seems like there is a point somewhere around 97, above which a modern civilization can be maintained, and below which things abruptly begin to fall apart. To illustrate this, I'll review some of the correlations mentioned above. Um, GDP per capita. You can't have civilization without money. It pays for education, health care, police, etc. If we use the national IQs from uh, uh, Fortius.com, who appear to have the updated version of Lynn and Van Hannon's data set, he said, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and compare them to the, the GDP that takes uh, local purchase power into account, we find clear support for the idea of a breaking point at 97 or thereabout. If we exclude oil nations, the top 20 with populations over 1 million, according to the Wikipedia IMFR, Singapore, Hong Kong, US, Switzerland, Canada, Australia, Austria, Netherlands, Ireland, Sweden, Germany, Taiwan, Belgium, Denmark, UK, Finland, Japan, France, Israel, and South Korea. In these top 20, there are nine nations in the 98 to 99 range, but only two countries below 98, Israel and Ireland. Both can be partly explained by the fact that they receive plenty of financial aid from the U.S. and EU, respectively, and it's unlikely that Ireland will stay in the top 20 given its huge public debt and very high unemployment. Uh, and this is from 2013. Um, and if we look at more normal countries with IQs below 98, those without oil or rich friends, we find that Slovenia with an IQ of 96 at 24th place, then Cyprus with an IQ at 91 and 26th, and Greece with an IQ of 92 at 27th. And Greece may well have uh, lost a spot as I write this. So at 98, there are plenty of wealthy countries, but at 97, it suddenly seems to evaporate. And this isn't just about money. If we turn to corruption, we find a similar picture. Um, according to the Corruption Perception Index, or CPI, the top 20 countries, again, with a population over 1 million most free of corruption are Denmark, Finland, 
New Zealand, Sweden, Singapore, Switzerland, Australia, Norway, Canada, Netherlands, Germany, Hong Kong, Belgium, Japan, UK, US, Chile, Uruguay, France, Austria, and Ireland. Um, strictly speaking, this is 21 nations since Austria and Ireland share the 20th spot, and it seemed a bit random to exclude one or the other. Um, anyway, we'll find that we find 10 countries in the 98 to 99 range, including the top four and six in the top 10. The only, only three countries below 98 are Ireland, Chile with an IQ of 90, and Uruguay with an IQ of 96. Again, we see how everything is fine at 98, but at 97 and below, things go south. Crime. Uh, turning to crime, so to speak, we find the top 20 countries with the lowest homicide rates and more than 1 million inhabitants, according to Wikipedia and the UNODC, are Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, Bahrain, Norway, Austria, Oman, Slovenia, Switzerland, United Arab Emirates, Spain, Germany, Qatar, Denmark, Italy, New Zealand, China, Saudi Arabia, Sweden, and Australia. This clearly breaks the pattern since we have five na nations in the 98 to 99 range and just as many low IQ nations, all from the Arab world. However, if we are looking for a point at which modern civilizations begin to crumble, then we shouldn't look at dictatorships at all. Uh, they can keep the murder rate low with social control and oppression, uh, but at, in doing so, they disqualify themselves as candidates for civilized societies. So if we limit our sample to at least somewhat civilized countries, we get a different picture. This is, of course, rather subjective method, but I think we can all agree that the countries above can't be a part of it. And I've included Hong Kong, but excluded China, so that's where I draw the admittedly somewhat arbitrary line. Uh, the top 20 at least moderately civilized countries with the lowest homicide rates then become Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, Norway, Austria, Slovenia, Switzerland, Spain, Germany, Denmark, Italy, New Zealand, Sweden, Australia, Poland, France, Netherlands, Ireland, UK, Portugal, and Serbia, IQ 89. Again, this becomes 21 countries because the last two are tied for 20th. Um, we find nine nations in the 98 to 99 and four countries below that. The anomaly here is Slovenia at sixth place, a country that was uh, also mild, uh, a country that was also a mild anomaly uh, with 24th on the GDP per capita list. Uh, but overall, this confirms the previous findings that there are plenty of nations in the 98 to 99 range, but at 97 or less, there are very few and nowhere near the top of the list. Um, again, indeed, looking at the sub-98 countries on these lists, we find that they made places 9 and 18 on the GDP list, 17, 18, and 20 on the corruption list, and 6, 18, and 2 tied for 20th on the homicide list. So they are not only few, but mainly at the bottom. And then um, democracy. Finally, let's uh, have a look at the um, Economist Democracy Index for 2012. Uh, the top 20 countries of nation with, or top 20 nations with more than a million people were Norway, Sweden, Denmark, New Zealand, Australia, Switzerland, Canada, Finland, Netherlands, Austria, Ireland, Germany, UK, Czech Republic, Uruguay, Mauritius, South Korea, USA, Costa Rica, and Japan. As you might expect by now, around half of these nine are in the 98 to 99 range, whereas only four are below that. 
again, Ireland is breaking the pattern, as are Uruguay, Mauritius, and Costa Rica with IQs of 90 and 89, respectively. We also find that four of the top five have 98 IQs, whereas those below this level are at 11, 15, 16, and 19. So an, an index of civilization. So what happens if we add all these measures up? I did this by scoring in reverse drinking order, starting from 100 for each measure to create a civilization index. Um, a statistician can probably come up with something better, but this will give a rough idea of the overall picture of the chart below uh, shows the result. So he's got a graph there, um, and I'll have a link to this on my blog. Um, as expected, there's a general pattern of higher degrees of civilization as intelligence increases. But the most civilized countries are all in a cluster with IQs between 98 and 101. Below 98, the level drops dramatically, as can be seen by the lack of dots in the upper left part of the chart. The only distinct anomaly left is Ireland, which scores 360 points for 12th spot, and less striking, Slovenia at 20th with 335. Or given that I've mentioned about the Irish economy, it may be Slovenia that's the more genuine anomaly here. Clearly not as horrible as it's portrayed in the, the hostile movies. At any rate, combining these factors eliminates anomalies and further strengthens support for an idea of a breaking point at approximately 97. Um, okay, and then he, he goes on to talk about America here. Um, I haven't found any official statistics for state-level IQs in America. There are, however, some, by some estimates... <clears throat> made by uh, audacious Epignon, um, based on the NAEP scores and educational measures are uh, strongly correlated with IQs. He has also set an American average at 98, which matches figures I've used above. So if we exclude the District of Columbia, which has a lot of apes, um, which is more common in these cases since it's full of government money and temporary inhabitants, the top 20 GDP per capita uh, for states are, are as follows. Delaware, Alaska, Connecticut, Wyoming, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Virginia, Washington, Colorado, California, Maryland, Minnesota, Illinois, South Dakota, Nebraska, Hawaii, Iowa, North Dakota, and Louisiana. As in all of the previous calculations, we find that states in the 98 to 99 make up roughly half the sample once more dominating the top positions, one, two, four, six, and eight. Below this level, we find only three states. California with an IQ of 95 at 11th position, and Hawaii with an IQ of 96 at 17th, and Louisiana with an IQ of 96 at 20th place. Um, there may be some explanations for these anomalies, although I'm not familiar that familiar with American politics. I, I believe this guy's European. Uh, but it seems clear that California is in at least as much trouble as Ireland. So, conclusions and implications. I'm not going to say that every conceivable measure on every conceivable level will show this pattern, but overall, I think we have to conclude the existence of an IQ breaking point somewhere close to 97, at which we see dramatically, uh, drastically different outcomes depending on whether a country is above or below this level. A country can, of course, still fail above this point, like Italy or most likely North Korea, but a national IQ above 97 represents a necessary but not sufficient condition for success. One implication, if this turns out to be true, is that immigration could pose a serious threat to the West, 
especially those countries and regions that are closest to the breaking point. The sad part is that everything is going so well at 98, they may dismiss this risk. This is especially true for those countries and states who are right at 98 and whose immigrants have the lowest IQs, for instance, France or Texas. As for California, that state has now clearly passed the breaking point, and it will be interesting to see if they will break the pattern. I suspect they won't, given that few countries that do fairly well below 98, like Ireland and Slovenia, Uruguay, are small and lacking in diversity, which is the opposite of California. Um, it's fully possible that someone else has already noted this breaking point, but since I hadn't heard of it before and it didn't seem like common knowledge, I figured it was worth sharing. I have no idea why 97 would be a magic number. Maybe it's just something in the human condition. I'll be updating this article whenever I find relevant information on this. So that that's my thesis. The, when the IQ drops to 97 or lower, then you're in trouble. Well, well, I mean, it's definitely a breaking point because if if you look at the scale as they measure IQ, which I definitely don't agree with, and and I probably never will. First, uh, uh, all right, how does Israel have an average IQ of 95, but Ashkenazi Jews are all geniuses at 115? I, <laughs> I, I don't really get that. I, I don't get that. Well, well, anyway, yeah, you know. Even as the way, even the way they measure IQ, it, it's pretty clear that all of the countries at the very bottom of the, of the list you don't want to live in, right? I mean, Liberia, um, Mozambique, Equatorial Guinea, Haiti, Somalia. That there is a point where the general population is so dumb that the few intelligent people in the population are never going to be able to prop up the country and and they'll probably commit suicide because they can't deal with with living among a a, a population of morons I, I mean you would become an alcoholic you, you wouldn't be able to deal with it so yeah you, I guess you would go the... into a state of depression Question. Yeah, so as the more dumb people come rolling in, the worse your society is going to get. And that's kind of my overall point tonight is, it's it, okay, so it, it says in Scripture that Gog and Magog will, will gather them to, to battle, and uh, they will encompass the camp of the saints about and, uh, and the beloved city. So that's us. So, okay, it's not like the Jews are telling these Mexicans to come in and destroy our country. No, they don't have just... to give them specific instructions. It's just they're so stupid, they can't function in a white society. So just by being there, they're wrecking it. Right, it's what they do. That, that they're consumers, that, that they are the canker worms, the palmer worms, the, the caterpillars and the locusts. They consume everything and produce nothing. Yeah, that, that's, that's what the that's Negroes cool. do. That's what the Mexicans do. That's what the Orientals do. I, I don't that this Oriental IQ thing in these IQ tests, it is absolutely incredible to me. I, I, I had a friend a long time ago who was working in Korea. He, he was pretty much banished from the United States. He had to make a living somewhere, and he went to Korea and got a job teaching English because he didn't know what else to do. So. 
he, he described to me how he used to tour the country, and he's back in America now, but, but he described to me how he used to tour the countryside in Korea and never saw any animals, never saw any animals, never saw any wildlife. They ate it all. They ate it all, and, and they rely on factory food or imported food to get meat at all because they ate all their animals. The, the, I, I, I don't... White intelligence it is um, beyond measuring in these IQ tests. What white well, men... It, it, if you give me um, three steer and, and, and three cows, I'm going to eat two steer this year because that's what I need to survive. But I'm not going to eat the cows. I'm going to milk the cows and use the best steer to interbreed with, with the to breed with the cow so that next year I could have two steer or better, right? I, I mean husbandry. That that's that the Orientals don't have it. That they're missing so much. That they're missing husbandry. They're missing art. That their music is flat and mechanical. It, it, did you ever listen to Chinese music? Yeah, I have. And I, I just wanted to reiterate one point from that article that said, but the most civilized countries are all in a cluster with IQs between 98 and 101. And on their with their IQ test numbers, those are the white countries. Yeah. So what, what that means is, to me, there is no such thing as non-white civilization. No. No. So it does I, not I, exist. does not exist. Right. I really believe that um, that these numbers are, are skewed. They're measuring something else besides intelligence. That they're um, Jewish IQ tests. But these Orientals certainly aren't as as um, intelligent as we are. And as we fill our nation with more and more non-whites, we're going to become the third world. It, it's. I mean, I've been saying for years that wherever Africans go, they produce Africa. It don't matter where they are. And wherever Mexicos go, they produce Mexico. That That is the product of their national character. And, and intelligence is a part of that character, yes. That's all they can produce. So, okay, even using their skewed IQ numbers, we can see that there's a break point at around 97. And we know Mexicans are well below that. You know, the, the, the average IQ in Mexico is 88. You know, in Guatemala, it's, it's below that. In Nicaragua, it's below that. So they're below the cut. You know, for me, 97 is really the cut, you know, or 98. If you're above, if 98 or above, you're acceptable. 97 and below. Well, well, maybe that national IQ number is a good indicator of, of, of when we should get ready for Babylon to fall. But See, now that's, that's exactly what my point is. So people are like, well, when is this all going to go down? When's the shit going to hit the fan? Well, one indicator, folks, I think, is when... When the Jews tell you that your your state or your country's average IQ was hit 97, it's time to start really being on the ball. And look at what's going on around you. Are high IQ people from Mexico coming in here? No. It's low IQ people, and what are they doing? They're taking up low uh, you know, or non-skilled labor jobs, or they're just 
getting straight up welfare gives. Well, well so right, but what I've seen is when you have less and less whites as a percentage of the population, more and more Negroes and Mexicans are pushed into administrative positions, technical positions, things that are where they're in over their heads. Yes, and that's we're seeing that in South Africa when they banned white males from the workforce. For a time, they, they said it was okay to have white women in there because they were oppressed too at some point. So the country kind of kept going, but then eventually the the you know the Jew-run government said, "Well, white women got to go too. We got to have all niggers in there." And now they have like four times as many people working at the power plant, but yet rolling blackouts because they just can't keep the lights on. Right, it's niggers running the power plant. That they. Well, there's a lot of things missing in their skill sets that they can't plan, that they cannot ration, that they they, they can't plan ahead and schedule um, time to, to do projects. All they care about is lunch. All they care about is filling their bellies now, immediate gratification, that they can't sit and... Um, gauge how many resources they're going to need over the next 30 days for various tasks and preserve those resources so that they have them when it comes time to perform a task it it's i've seen that through my own observation and 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 my whole experience with these other races the the negroes are, are the worst in that area it, if you give a Negro 30 candy bars and tell that Negro that he, those candy bars have to last him all month, he's going to eat them all the first day. <laughs> well, of course he is. They, yeah, like you said, they have they have no ability for delayed gratification. It does not exist. No, and, and that carries over in, into um, professional tasks where, where, where they really can't, plan out um, supply lines, supply supplies, logistics, things like that to, to be able to get a job done every day for the next month. Yet you have to look at your resources and stretch your resources out over that month. That They don't have the capability to do that. The, the, if you staff a hundred post power plant with 98 negroes and two mexicans you're not going to have lights tomorrow no and so i guess you know kind of my my final point would be is that as these states kind of dip below this number things are going to get bad so already california hawaii and louisiana those are i think the lowest in alabama these type of states you know mississippi with all these niggers they're in trouble right now. And like you said, okay, well, when's Babylon going to fall? Well, when enough of these states dip below this IQ breaking point, you're going to start to see the whole system start to fail. And that's when you could see Mystery to Babylon collapse. So I think this is an indicator to keep your eyes on, folks. Well, well, it is it, it is an interesting correlation, and and I just think it's natural correlation. I, I mean, I, I don't agree with their IQ tests and their numbers. I think they're full of shit. But it it, it is a natural correlation. Yeah, well, I, I think we can we can all agree that 
Jews are, are you know, around the same intelligence as whites, and niggers are way below it, and Mexicans are way below it. Well, well right. I think that I'm, I'm confident that Asians are below it, but not really way below it. Yeah, so, I mean, for my, really for my purposes, is are you at 97 or above even in this skewed test? And we know Mexicans are way below that. We know Africans are way below that. And so when you add Mexicans and Africans to your otherwise functioning modern civilization, it's going to have problems. Well, well there are entire tribes in sub-Saharan Africa whose building skills have not yet attained the level of beaver. And... and Who's, who can't seem to manufacture anything for um, mosquito repellent outside of urine. No, I mean, it, you know, apes in Africa have never built a sewer system, invented the wheel, developed a written language. You know, these, this, these things have evaded the, the African culture, if you can call it that, for all these thousands of years. And they're not going to improve. They are what they are. The gorilla, Coco the gorilla, is smarter than they are. And and the outcome is Detroit. Yep, that's, see, this is why Detroit is Detroit. You know, a million Africans is equal to about a 75 or 50 to 75 kiloton nuclear bomb, air burst. It just takes longer, but the results are pretty much the same. Your city is completely destroyed. And so we can see scripture being fulfilled all around us. And we can see that, you know, we, I've run into people on Gab and, and such. Oh, this, this immigration problem, that isn't Gog and Magog. You've got your scripture all wrong. Oh, do I really... Well, well, right. I mean, we could go from from um, Revelation twelve to to Ezekiel chapter thirty eight and thirty nine. It's the same. It, it's the same exact scenario. And and Ezekiel thirty eight and thirty nine are not consecutive. They're two visions of the same thing. It's a Hebrew reduplication. It's a parallelism. So thirty eight is one view of, of this scenario, and Ezekiel thirty nine is another view of the same scenario, and Revelation chapter twenty is another view of the same scenario. It's three visions of, of exactly what's going on today. Well, and God commanded us to be a, a, a separate and holy people under under God, and when we when we stray from that, it has dire consequences. And we're seeing that play out all around us. I mean, the very survival of our race is now at stake. Well, well right. And, and if this program serves for anything, I, I think that um, the concept of the collective intelligence that's required to maintain a society is not um, considered enough by 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 average people it's not considered at all by average people they have no no, no concept of that no they, that they think the stuff person. just runs right 
The, the, the electricity comes on because I have a light switch on the wall. Why wouldn't it come well, on? Of course. Th there's a light switch there and there's an outlet there because it always works. Yeah. And they they don't understand the entire infrastructure that goes into supplying that, that switch and that outlet. Yeah. And so I guess my final point would be that we have a group of people in power that know the things that I just rattled off for the last two hours. They're, pain they're, they're very well aware of this. And in spite of that, they are openly inviting these people into our countries to invade us. And there, there's a hostile force that runs our governments that is trying to replace us and destroy civilization. And that hostile force is the international Jew. Well, well, right, and they must not care if their lights don't come on. Well, I wouldn't say that the Jews don't care if their lights come on. I would put it that they care more about killing us. I would agree. I, I mean, I would have to agree. I have to agree. that There's no... Um, <coughs> I'm sorry. Talk about intelligence. Talk about intelligence that there's no other reason that I could fathom why the most intelligent, culturally advanced people on Earth would purposely allow themselves to be overrun and their blood to be destroyed by unintelligent savages, savage beasts. There's no other reason. It, if this is not the Camp of the Saints scenario from Scripture, then why are we allowing this to happen to ourselves? There's no other reason. No. Nobody voted for this shit. But it's happening. Right. And, and it's being allowed to happen. I, I mean, people aren't doing anything about it. That they've never expressed any outrage uh, I mean oh okay here we go back to my childhood in Jersey City and when beautiful downtown Jersey City which was in the mid 1960s probably mostly Polish German and Italian when that was overrun by Puerto Ricans and white flight sent most of those Irish, Germans, and Italians down to the Jersey Shore or to the Bergen County suburbs in the late 1960s and early 1970s. I can't remember any um, protest in, in the media or among the people in other parts of the city. Nobody complained about it. It just happened that they just took it for granted that it would happen that it's the natural course of things? No, it's not natural. It, it's not natural. But because within 10 years, those entire neighborhoods were ruined and all the buildings were being leveled because the Puerto Ricans just destroyed everything. And, and the, the city was rebuilding new housing projects everywhere. Yeah, and this wasn't just an accidental thing. I mean, this goes... I mean. We, we see as far back as the Kalergi plan, where they said the modern man will be a mix like the Egyptians. Like Kalergi. He, he was... this, is a, this is a policy 
that has been brought forth and carried out by international Jewry. They assassinated John Kennedy to bring it about. Well, well, I mean that 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 could be very well that that could be very true that he stood in the way of some of these plans and and they wanted Lyndon Johnson in there because they thought it was time to 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 get these th this ball rolling right that the Immigration yep, I mean, Act the Civil Rights Kennedy was for the Civil Rights thing I I never seen him stand against the Civil Rights issues but the Immigration Act and and the Great Society, um. And the civil rights all go hand in hand. Yet you can't elevate the Negro without the Great Society. I mean, you could give him civil rights, but you're not going to pull him out of the out, out of the swamp un unless you give him welfare programs. Yeah, and I, I never saw any evidence that Kennedy was going to have a Great Society type initiative. He was going to he was talking about voting rights and stuff like that, and. 20 million niggers voting wouldn't be a problem, but today now we have over 44 million of them. And I, I think that's that number is low. I think blacks are consistently undercounted on the census just because a lot of them are vagrants or bouncing around. I think there's a lot more of them than Oh, I agree. I, and I, I've always these, agreed with that. Yeah, and, and these policies are brought about by LBJ, who I'm convinced was Jewish, and this was this is a the great society was a policy to destroy white christian civilization well right i mean act of 1965 was a policy to destroy white christian civilization you, you know the yeah, you could bring the immigrants over here. They're not going to want to be here un unless they have some sort of financial security. They're not going to come. You, you could um, liberate the Negro and give him civil rights. It, it's not going to do him any good because he's never going to work. Most of them are never going to actually work an honest living. So, so you need that great society to make the Immigration Act and the Civil Rights Act successful. It, correct, yeah, and the, the Central Americans come here because, you know, they, like like the niggers, they can't grow enough food to feed themselves because at IQ 88, they really have poor infrastructure. So the, Lat the Latinos, they will pour in here because food's plentiful and there are, meaning, you know, menial jobs to be had. Well, well so right, but I really believe that Central and South America are really only being used by the international corporations to get all, all the goodies that they can sell to, to Westerners that, that love their coffee and their sugar and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's we're seeing the flood. There's it, It's not slowing down much, if any even under Trump, and I think, you know, we had, we'd alluded to the Steinlight plan earlier, and I think Trump is very closely aligned to that Steinlight plan to not stop the influx, just to slow it down enough so the Jews can manage the situation. If indeed he slows it down at all, because they really haven't deported any, any more um, illegal aliens than Obama did, as we've already discussed. 
No, but I, in the last week now, I've seen stories coming up where Trump's going to get serious about immigration and he's talking about a government shutdown. But we'll see what actually plays out on that front. You know, we'll it, see how that actually well, we'll see what actually happens. Well, well, DACA is dead, but it seems to me like the Republicans are trying to revive it. There's plenty of, uh, of Republicans on the Jewish corporate payroll that want to get DACA through, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, if Trump is really anti-immigration, he, he, he'd let DACA die, but it seems like they're trying to revive it and, instead of letting it let let letting it be dead I, I, I don't know it, it's all mixed signals to me from this administration and and from the from the um its political party in general so what you know i i can't speculate for exact you know i don't know exactly how it's going to play out with trump and immigration but we do know that eventually we will get separation from these mud people. Um, the sheep and the goats will separate, but we don't know when that's going to occur and if that process has even started yet. No, I don't think it can occur until Babylon falls. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that, and I think the next step is is the, the fall of the system. I, I don't think as long as this system's in place that there's going to be any break for the white man. So the whole damn thing is going to have to come down. And the question is, when is the whole damn thing going to come down? And I think when enough muds get in here to drop the IQ, then that's when it's going to start to go. Well, well California is in serious trouble. And, yep. and another state that's in serious trouble that you don't hear too much about is Illinois. Yeah, Illinois is one I've got on my radar and I've been doing research on. And perhaps in the next show or two, we will discuss Illinois and Chicago extensively. Yeah, I, I have a couple of interesting things to say from my observations. We, we went through there last year. I drove through the center of Chicago. Yeah, Chicago is in big, big trouble. The state of Illinois is in big, big trouble. Oh, Chicago is a, a shithole country. The, the whole place is. But the in, in the environs of Chicago, especially just over the Indiana border in, in northwest Indiana, you, you see um, thousands and thousands and thousands of McMansions popping up under construction. And, and I really think it's white people and, and wealthier Jews and things like that fleeing Chicago. Or as I call it, Chicago. And, and also fleeing Illinois, because a lot of them are, are on the Indiana side. Illinois is losing population. And we'll, I'll have numbers on that, for, I think, for the next show. We'll, I'll break that all down. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll focus on Europe the next program. Okay, if you want to do Europe, then we'll do Chicago after that. Yeah, we really need to have a discussion uh, on not only the immigration thing in Europe, and, and there are some, that there's a woman running for president in Sweden that's anti-immigration, and, and she's actually getting some attention, I think. i, I got to look into her better. I can't remember her, her name. It's a Swedish name. It's all Greek to me. But, but um, I saw some of her some of her talks on on youtube and she's definitely anti-immigration and and she's running for president yeah i'm not, we're i'm actually getting reports of swedes fleeing the country because of the immigrant problem 
Yeah, where are they going to go? Denmark? <laughs> They're coming to the U.S. Um, I, I'll, I'll have some more info on that. They're going yeah, to allow they're... Swedes into the U.S. That That's another factor, right? Yeah, uh, well, yeah. I, will the Jews let any white people in here? That there's South Africans are trying to um, petition the Australian government for asylum. That That's going on. There's a few things going on that are interesting. It, it's just that these things we've been talking about for for a long time in diverse places seem to be coming to a head finally. And what's going to happen, we don't quite know yet. No, but, I mean, I guess, you know, what, what, what I could say is we're seeing Scripture being fulfilled around us every day. And the, the Camp of the Saints is going on right now. We're being compassed about, um, like it says in Ezekiel, and... Uh, we're just waiting for Mystery of Babylon to fall and fire to come down from God out of heaven and devour these beasts. Babylon has to fall first. And, and we may very, very well be that fire from heaven. That, that's the way I see it playing out. That's us. That, that's um, white people. Yes, it is. So, okay. Finally understand the only way to get out of this mess is to get them out. And, and Okay, Don. Thanks for being here. And, and Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, I think we hit people uh, with some info, and uh, we'll have more uh, next month. Wonderful. Yahweh bless. We'll see you then. God bless, Bill. Is shining bright with unspilled tears Thinking about all those wasted years When everything worth living for is gone And brother, I find it hard to keep fighting on
This is 